This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by Ed Reid, our African LNG editor, and Hamish Penman, digital journalist. And we've got a lot of, well, the through line this week does seem to be, we need more oil and gas, who knew? Maybe I'll be indulgent and talk about my travels, uh, my misadventures in Norway. Um, and yeah, so just back from ONS in Stavanger, and, and before we talk about Elon the Great um, and, and his musings, uh, it's 50 years of offshore Europe next year in Aberdeen. Uh, and having a look at what they've got at ONS in Stavanger, it's my first time at ONS, they had a helicopter in a conference center, and it was a giant helicopter. They had dinosaurs, uh, they had breakdancers, and uh, perhaps most importantly, they had this really great evidence of people coming out and spending money, and you know, just being really present uh, and, and in the in the town center. Um, so, yeah, I've got to say, you know, fifty years of offshore Europe next year. Can they can they meet that standard uh, seen uh, over in Stavanger? Because I, I think they put on an incredible show. Uh, I was really impressed with it. So, you know, fingers crossed. I I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it was a, it was a really good good place to to be. Um, and yeah, uh, lots of excitement there uh, around the, the tech billionaire, uh, Elon Musk. Um, we can talk about what he said and, and the events around it. Um, the news line that was picked up, he said, the world needs more oil and gas, which I, I suppose is a pragmatic thing to say. Uh, you know, he spoke against uh, demonizing oil and gas, which we, we've seen a lot of. Um, and, you know, there's there, there was this discussion about a, a path to a sustainable future, as he put it, and that there was discussion of uh, nuclear and, and offshore wind, um, but effectively saying at this stage anyway, we need uh, oil and gas for civilization to thrive, which is which is uh, true. Um, talked a bit about offshore wind as an untapped resource. Uh, we need a huge ramp up in production of battery technology to do so. Um, he talked about electric vehicles. We need to have kind of the amount of um you know we need to refine like the, the the raw materials into battery grade materials and you need something like to the standard of the world oil and gas industry to the to the scale of that industry in order to do it uh, quickly enough he was saying um but yeah it was it was quite interesting i i, I dare say uh, our readers were quite <laughs> quite happy to hear the the oil and gas stuff um i also think that uh, elon musk he, he does seem to have this massive following particularly of uh uh, well, uh, entrepreneurial-minded people, let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, there, there was there was other stuff going on around that, of course. Um, at the opening session, we had uh, the, the Norwegian Prime Minister, we had uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine, uh, and of course, we had the CEOs of Total and uh, Equinor. But um, what, what, what struck me, um, the way it was set up, I was kind of asking myself, like, what they, they were kind of suggesting to the, the media... You guys watch it in Hall 10 in the press room like via live link. We're not going to allow, we're, we're only going to allow a, a very few media into the actual kind of it's like adjacent hotel conference center where they're actually doing the, the plenary session. And I was saying, well, why are they doing that? That's a bit odd. Um, and then, of course, it, it became clear when the fire alarm went off halfway through uh, Elon Musk's uh, interview, um, affecting us in the press center, but not the hotel because they hadn't let people into the hotel in that regard, because they were clearly worried that protesters would dress themselves up as journalists to get access. So, um, yeah, the fire alarm went off halfway through, so I missed a large chunk of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had to go down to see uh, what's what was going on. And, um, yeah, 
just stop oil were there. Um, and I, I must say, I didn't do a, a thorough uh, investigative journalist uh, thing. Uh, it was quite clear what was going on, but I just went up to them and says, have you glued yourself to that wall? Yep. Are you just up oil? Yep. Did you trigger the fire alarm? Yep. Sounds like you got to the heart of the matter, Alistair. I think with your usual incisive questioning, <laughs> you just really cut straight to the issue at hand. Yeah, I, I mean, we cut we cut through it. <laughs> I mean, I think everyone appreciates that, right? You know, I we, we, we they know what they're doing. I don't want to, you know, it's fine, it's fine. And there was a guy, you know, out there, and of course it was, uh, uh, they were they were saying, you know, there must stop new licensing of oil and gas. Um, uh, it, it, you know, and 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 uh, in Norway and, and and internationally, and of course, we did have that IEA statement last year saying there should be no new oil and gas if the world is to get to net zero by 2050, uh, and that was a, a big topic of conversation for many of the people I spoke to at ONS. Um, and I suppose you know we, we can't be uh, obtuse about the realities of recent months. Um, and yes, we do need more oil and gas at this stage. Hopefully, not in. You know, a long-term future, uh, or, or at least, you know, we will probably need oil and gas for decades to come, but hopefully it won't be the primary uh, source like it is today. And and bef minutes before the protesters triggered that alarm, we did have the Prime Minister of Norway um, talking about, you know, obviously Norway's been doing its best to ramp up production to help supply Europe. It has got an important role to play there. Uh, and uh, we also had uh, President Zelensky uh, praising that, helping, uh, well, Norway's role in helping, uh, I, I suppose, underwrite the energy security of, of, of Europe and, and parts of the wider world. Uh, and Norway has uh, announced uh, that it is investing quite a lot of money in helping to, um, well, uh, help production of, of, of natural gas and supply natural gas, um, fund supply of gas to Ukraine in 2022. I think it's something in the region of 205 million euros and they're inviting other countries to uh, join in. So, you know, I, it was quite an interesting juxtaposition of, no, we need oil and gas, this, this is why we need it. And uh, not five minutes later, turn off the fire alarm and everyone calls up. But I think I think it's probably to be expected. I was wondering when are the protesters going to show up and uh, it was nice for them to get out of the way quickly. But that, that's all I'll say. Um, but yeah, no, it, it it was it was a good old a good old conference. Um, but uh, yeah, some some interesting views from from old Elon there. Have either of you guys ever seen him at any of the events you guys have been at, or is that, am I the first one to? I'm not going to say pop the Elon cherry. That sounds wrong. Um, but you know, am I the first one? Yeah, no, I I don't think I've ever seen him. Um, but I, uh, you know, obviously he's uh, he he certainly knows how to uh, provoke and entertain. I think, mm. <laughs> you know, I think you know. There's clearly a, a question about uh, how possibly how seriously we should take some of his statements. Uh, I, I know the uh, the SEC has uh, some some thoughts on that opinion, on, the, on, the, on that matter. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but 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 certainly, I think uh, like an an entertaining guy to watch. He he is, yeah. I mean, he captured the audience, and he does seem to have this uh, this thriving fan base um, about him. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was good to see and. And, and and it was again. It was a really interesting uh, conference overall, um, and we did get some good access to people. Um, but I guess one of my one of my memories, my my lasting memories of of going over to to Stavanger for for for, for my, I was I would underline it was really positive and I enjoyed it. Um, obviously, I remember listening to Elon Musk. But I also remember like you know the the hotel next to us. We we're just right at the hotel, right next to the conference center. It's like a tower. Um, and I, you know, I took out, I took out my shirts out of my, out of my bag and they're all crumpled as, as hell. And I said, I need an ironing board. I need an ironing board and couldn't get an ironing board. So we ended up having come back on Sunday evening after we arrived after one too many drinks, 
uh, going up to the, the reception and say, look, I, I need to iron my shirts. And they said, well, we don't have any irons, but I'll do this for you. I will take this iron for you, but we've got to go up to the penthouse and we'll iron it for you there. And I was like, what? What do you mean I have to go to? So I went to the penthouse, me, Debbie, and one of the receptionists, and um, ironed some shirts from like the 21st floor overlooking Stavanger. And I was like, <laughs> shouldn't have to go to these extremes to to do this. What's uh, what's going on? So yeah, it was a bit odd, a bit odd. But uh, that's, that's just how the, the penthouse elite like to live. Just, <laughs> you know, looking out over Stavanger, ironing ironing shirts. I mean, what's, what's not to love? It was just, I was just a bit like, why do I have to go to this extreme to... To get an anyway, um, yeah, I, I said, look, I'll pay for it. This, you know, we don't have to. Be, yeah, no, that was what they said. I think it's to do with their fire alarm regulations. I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but yeah, anyway, if you get the chance to head on over to Old Stavanger, I do recommend it. It is a, a great old place, um, and as I say, yeah, a lot, a lot to live up to for uh, offshore Europe next year. Fifty years. Can they meet the the well, the break dancers and the dinosaurs and the the helicopters of <laughs> Stavanger? We'll we'll find out. They'll definitely have the protesters. They'll definitely have the protesters. <laughs> well, there was some suggestion that wasn't actually glue. Perhaps it was it was like blue tack. Mm. So I didn't actually see any glue. Shouldn't have been too difficult to remove. Uh, well, well, they were laying it on thick, Hamish. What can I say? Um, and that's the thing, isn't it? Once, once there's, there's the suspicion of glue, then you've got to get the special, uh, you know, debonding unit or whatever, isn't it? The anti-glue. <laughs> You can't just give them a bit of a yank to see how, uh, how 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 correct it is. You've got to you've got you've got to wait and find out. Well, this is why this is why you know the direct line of questioning because I I knew these guys were professionals. Well, I, th- I think maybe that maybe that maybe that was that was that was too leading a question. You should have said, "Are you attached to that wall?" You know, uh, <laughs> did you blue tag yourself to the wall? You know, like just try and try and try and you know catch them out like that. What is the Norwegian word for blue? T- I mean, maybe it's blue tag. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's enough of the protesters and uh, and Musk's music for now uh next we'll be back with uh well oh my the the rough stuff with hamish as well as these regular weekly news roundups on energy voice out loud you'll also find lots of subject specific box sets in the same feed and i'm excited to be the anchor for one called the megawatt hour produced in paid partnership with bdo the megawatt hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I, I knew I shouldn't have done that segue, Hamish. I'm sorry, but I, I, just, I couldn't resist anyway. Uh, so some uh, more progress on the rough storage facility in the UK this week. That's quite all right. The the goal was open and you simply tapped at home. So <laughs> I you did. Can't be, yes, nobody can, nobody yes. can be angry at you for doing that. Um, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, That's what HR will say. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the last big hurdle um, to reopening the, the rough field has, has now been crossed, it seems. The North Sea Transition Authority has granted the required approvals and consents to Centrica to uh, to start using the gas storage facility once more. So that's uh, all the documents needed from the NSTA, uh, Andy Samuel. Uh, praise the the team working on it for the pace it's been progressed and and flagged the important role that Rough will have in uh, the energy security drive. 
Uh, and there, yeah, there were reports recently that Ruff could be back up and running um, at the end of September. So a really rapid turnaround. Um, and the only thing Tedrica now is after is a state support, I think, mm. um, which given the backing they've had from politicians, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, the um, business energy secretary, he tweeted to celebrate the NSTA decision. So you would uh, you'd expect Centrica shouldn't have too much trouble getting uh, government backing in, in one form or another. Um, it's obviously in government storage to have uh, government interest rather to, to have gas storage too. Uh, the lack thereof has been pretty apparent in the last year or so, and it will give them another lever in this great energy security offensive. So, um, mm. I mean, just on rough, there have been Andrew did a good piece on this that is, is worth going to read. There have been some safety fle- fears flagged around it. Um, some th- think it won't be able to perform like it did. It has been out of action for a few years now um i mean that kind of remains to be seen a lot of those a lot of those uh, issues on performance um but i think increasing gas storage i mean it can only we've chatted on here enough about how the uh, the lack of gas storage is a bit in the uk quite hard so i think expanding that can only be a positive thing mm-hmm. and approval apparently has been given by the health and safety executives so that should allay a number of safety worries, um, at least. Yeah, just for, for background on on Rough, it's located about 18 miles off Yorkshire, uh, previously accounted for around 70% of, of Britain's natural gas storage capacity. Um, it's had about five years out of action. It was closed down in 2017. That was due to the costs of keeping it running. And the government at the time said it had kind of bountiful other energy sources, so it, this this level of storage wasn't required. Um, but there have been suggestions that the prime ministerial hopeful Liz Truss may actually have had a hand in in the closure of Rough as well, um, though her and her team have denied this. <laughs> um, so yeah, there were concerns at the time that closing Rough was uh, was short sighted, and, and so it turned out to be, um, especially about a year ago, it was about this time last year when gas prices began their their long and pretty relentless climb and it's not really changed uh, things haven't changed tax since so yeah rough could start to receive gas at the end of the month as a as long as centrica can find some which uh it's kind of difficult to come by currently everybody <laughs> wants some how much how much how much gas can rough hold i mean you said it was uh 70 like how much of an impact is it going to have on you know that kind of nightmare scenario of, of of not being able to turn the kettle on come january so i think if if it can hold uh, capacity for about 10 days mm-hmm. of demand so i think if all other sources uh were to uh extinguish and rough was the only one left then yeah we'd, we'd have about 10 days before society broke down and and rioting and, and looting became a, became the norm it's interesting isn't it because uh liz truss is today saying uh, I believe she's ruling out energy rationing this winter without knowing how cold it's going to be. <laughs> um, and then Kwasi Kwarteng, who, who backs Liz Truss in, in this uh, election, he, he's clearly a lot more, or it would appear to be more concerned about it, because he's tweeted in the past few days, winter energy security update, North Sea gas production up, extra one BCM of gas secured from Norway, approval to open rough. Uh, coal plants remaining online, LNG cargoes, and Liz Truss says, aye, there won't be any rationing, it's fine. It does seem rather blasé, doesn't it? It does, and it does seem like an interesting juxtaposition by two people apparently in the same camp. So, uh, And obviously we've had all things such as you know these warnings about blackouts and the like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the opening of Rough, yeah, it's, it's a fallback for energy security, um, and it's clearly pragmatic to have it open. Uh, and I think the obvious thing to say is, 
for you know 90% of people who are facing crippling costs, it's not going to do anything. But what it will, will do is ensure that hopefully we're not going to face anything like blackouts. And, and maybe that is extreme. Uh, maybe Liz Truss is right to, to rule it out. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's one of the, the points, I guess, is that you know, we, we've got it. We've got it in the back pocket. It ain't going to affect the, the price of gas. Um, or too much anyway. No, not in the short term. It might do more in the long term, which is, I mean, a lot of these these problems that we're currently seeing are due to a lack of long-term vision from from successive governments. So mm. perhaps it could, it, it might well help things in uh, down the line. And it, just on that point of blackouts, yeah, Liz Trust doesn't seem overly, overly worried. Quasi Quarting does seem to be in and spoke to Alex Kemp from Aberdeen University um, recently, who also said it's a distinct possibility. Um, he did give a little silver lining of that um, households will be the last to, to face rationing, as it were, because it's so difficult to implement. It will be a high industry or high high energy uh, industry that will be, be the first. But yeah, he's said it's something that should seriously be considered because, yeah, we can't plan how winter is. He also gave quite interesting overview of the of gas flows currently they're being kind of cargoes being brought over from the US to um the uh, west coast of Wales flowing through to Bacton where they're actually flowing to Europe to to top up gas storage there so hopefully a bit of that could be siphoned off to um too rough because I, I think I was reading this week that European gas storage has filled up ahead of schedule so it's um and, and I think the price has dropped in the last couple of days as a result of that as well as EU I think the EU are planning to um intervene in the market to try and try and uh, allay some of these price rises i mean i suppose you know coming back to your your, your point as to about that kind of question about rationing i suppose you know in a way it doesn't make any sense for us now to reduce consumption because if we saved that gas where would it go it would just flow into european you know sort of storage or or, or elsewhere wouldn't it so yeah. at the moment it kind of feels like we should you know fill our boots <laughs> it's kind of when uh, when when winter comes that, that things would obviously become a bit more tricky which which feels a bit nuts right i mean i think is as you know it's kind of like a really really fair point to say this is uh, clearly not the best way to do it because, you know, looking at the, some of the steps that the Germans, the French have taken to reduce energy cons- consumption makes sort of, you know, some, some some pretty appealing sense given how difficult we can all see winter being. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it also comes back to that, that point about, well, I think there's been a lot said about successive kind of energy policy failures um, in, in the UK and, and clearly a big one for the, the current administration is, uh, you know, insulation of homes and, and things of that nature, uh, home home heating. Um, that's possibly one's going to come and, and, and bite us. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a question of what can you do realistically in the short term ahead of a, a winter, which is now not too far away. I'm very sorry to say, as I said, we had, had consistently nice weather in Norway and it seems to be all right here in Aberdeen. Um, I really am not ready for the nights to get darker. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those points. And, and actually, uh, again, going back to Elon Musk, and he he, gave, he was talking about nuclear and all the rest of it. He was, he was saying, well, if you've got a well-designed nuclear plant these days, I wouldn't shut it down because you might just need it. Um, which is, you know, contentious in certain political circles. But um, also, nuclear power not uh, not flawless, right? Yeah. As, the, as the French are discovering. Yeah. I mean, I think you know there is this whole there is this kind of nuclear boosterism kind of uh, chat going on, yeah. and you know, obviously, everyone's like, oh, it's clean, it you know never breaks down, it's base load, it's whatever. And you look at France and some of the difficulties that EDF is having, and you know, the sort of the the safety concerns that they're having. Which is pretty much the last thing you want to hear when talking about uh, nuclear power, isn't it? Safety concerns. So, I mean, I think, you know, like, obviously, 
possibly possibly part of a, of a well-rounded energy mix fine but uh nuclear power as an end in itself is not going to be the answer mm. no well indeed indeed so it's uh it's it's interesting to see what's going to come up next but uh i think i think for that uh hamish thank you very much for talking us through the energy security situation there um speaking of which uh progress is afoot for a major refinery in nigeria Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. So Ed, uh, this refinery near Lagos, uh, I think it's been going on, rumbling around for a little while now. Or are things uh, coming together? Yes, progress has been slow, as is often the case, it seems, in uh, in Nigeria. But finally, we may be seeing some, uh, maybe maybe the final straight. Is that uh, is that the phrase I'm looking for? <laughs> so the NNPC head, uh, Melikayari, uh, this week uh, did a sort of a, a, a chat with some, some journalists uh, and, and sort of, you know, set out his vision for uh, Nigeria's, uh, sort of future, I suppose, and, and and really sort of focused on that sort of you know domestic supply question around around sort of you know gasoline supplies, um, and 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 it's one of the the oddities of Nigeria is that you know for a country that produces you know more than a million barrels per day and 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 has four refineries, it uh, imports effectively all of its petroleum products. Uh, why is a good question. I think you know the those those four refineries. None of them work particularly well. They always seem to be under varying levels of uh, of, of of maintenance and repairs. So that may also be improving. So assuming those four refineries come together, and assuming the Dangote uh, plant, uh, as you say, in, in in just outside Lagos. Um, finally is commissioned, then the, the Nigeria may end its uh, fuel imports by sort of mid-2023, Kairi was saying, which, you know, would be would be tr- pretty transformative. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about... Um, where the 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 flows of those those products come from, the Netherlands, the UK. I mean, it's it's a real there's a sort of an established route from 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 Europe into into Nigeria, into West Africa, and you know there's a chance that that trade may be coming to an end, which w- which would be fascinating. Obviously, for that to actually happen would require, should we say, a lot of things to go right that may not have tended to go right in the past. I mean, I think you know. There is there is a, a real sort of a driving need for this uh, Dangote plant, which is which is which is massive. I mean, it's six hundred and fifty thousand barrels per day of processing capacity. Mm. So I mean, you know, when that comes around, that it, that that will have a sort of a you know a really important part. And and an NPC has a twenty percent stake in that plant, so they get essentially twenty percent of the of, of the products. And interestingly enough, uh, also they have the right of uh, first refusal to supply. Uh, 20% of that refinery's crude, 
which Kayari was saying was uh, part of NNPC's energy transition plan. So they're they're effectively sort of securing uh, a future future uh, you know oil use for their for that for that for that Nigerian production, which I think is an interesting way to sort of try and uh, lock in that sort of um, you know the, the some of those energy transition worries. <laughs> but so yeah, so so Dangote's plant is kind of coming together nicely. But I think the big question is about those four refineries that are that are already existing and that. You know that they're essentially uh, at zero percent utilization. Uh, traditionally, uh, should we say there have been allegations uh, that um, there is a vested interest in, in in stopping those refineries from actually uh, actually producing fuel that um, that, that that fuel importers. Uh, may be too keen on securing the, uh, the, the the contracts to supply gasoline and diesel into Nigeria and may have some sort of a nefarious hand in preventing those refineries coming back online who's to say it's not it's not not my not my place obviously um, but that that's certainly some of those uh, those allegations that we've that we've seen flying but it does seem that those have had historic problems, and the uh, the, the the government, uh, the uh, Nigerian National Oil Company, has continued sort of throwing cash into these into these plants with very little to show for it. It would be nice to see that uh, see some changes in that regard, but I'm not holding my breath. If this new plant came came online, um, is there any suggestion that I mean? Why should it be any different to the other ones that are already up and running and having these this, this wave of problems? So, or is that indeed the the issue? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I think you know, as we as we've seen, right? I mean, I think the the original plan for the refinery, I think, was saying that it was supposed to start in twenty seventeen. Hmm. By my reckoning, it's now five years later, uh, and we're closing in on the sixth year, which is, I think, when uh, when Kayari was saying that he expects the plant to start actually producing. So that gives you a sense, perhaps, as as some of the, uh, the the challenges in in, in executing projects. Um, would it would would this be different to the other refineries? I mean, it's not going to be owned by the, uh, or not at least not one hundred percent owned by the uh, the national oil companies. So that seems like a kind of a good start. I mean, you know, Dan Goti has clearly put in a lot of time and effort and cash, and you know, he's secured bank loans. So there is a sort of a, an amount of uh, desire to, to to get this sort of plant up and running. And I think um, so. That that does feel like it's a it's a difference. I think the the the, the challenge is going to be obviously the the, the Nigerian state has an effective twenty percent stake in that plant, so they're going to get say twenty percent of that production of that sort of you know of of the of the of the gasoline that kind of comes out of it. The rest of the the eighty percent is is not dedicated to Nigeria, so that is presumably going to be looking to go into the global market. How is that going to uh, f- you know figure in terms of uh, in terms of competitiveness? I mean, I think I suppose if the price is right, then you know presumably it could stay in Nigeria, and, and obviously Nigerians at the at the release the Nigerian government is paying global market prices in order to buy that fuel and you know from international places and then selling it at a loss domestically. So will they be able to sell it to, you know I mean I think there there is a question around around where that where that future production goes but it feels like that refinery is going to be different. The other four refineries I'm not so sure. Interesting. And and you know we've talked before about the situation with bunkering in in Nigeria in the past. I mean, to to what extent is that getting blamed for, I guess, some of the roadblocks with 
I guess the other refineries. Uh, I, I just I've, I've noticed some of the choice language of arresting the the rats, <laughs> stealing um, from from some of the pipelines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, not your not your language. <laughs> yeah, I, should, I, I should be clear. One of the people quoted in the article. That might be a bit punchy for uh, for the report. I mean, who's to say? I mean, you know, we we'll, we we'll, we we'll, we we'll feel uh, the uh, you know the tug of strong emotions at some point, don't we? <laughs> but look, I mean, I think you know, look, clearly Nigeria has a problem with 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 oil theft. I mean, I think there's there's going to have been a question this week about how much oil actually gets stolen. It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, Nigeria lacks an effective uh, metering system. So there is a there is a big question around around how much oil it produces, how much oil might get stolen, how much oil just gets spilled or, or just gets deferred because of this sort of insecurity threat. So I think there is there has been over the last year, there's been a massive increase in, should we say, that sort of insurgency and that sort of theft and that bunkering practice. And as a result, we've seen Nigeria's production fall from some, what was last year, something like 1.5 million barrels today to about a million barrels per day now. That is partly because of theft and partly because of people not wanting to produce oil into pipelines that are frankly uh, clearly theft prone. So the you know they, they, the the government has been talking this tough talk about sort of cracking down on on, on this theft. You know they've they, they've uh, hired this former Niger Delta militant Tom Polo, which is obviously a bit of a contentious issue as a man who was once involved in stealing that crude in driving that insurgency in the Niger Delta to now, you know, being in a position where the government is paying him a quite considerable amount of money to uh, you know provide security. Clearly, there are you know sort of desperate times, desperate measures, um, but we've not yet seen any you know sort of a reduction in in that theft, and it doesn't seem like it's changing. I mean, it, I think one of the things that you know perhaps should be borne in mind is it does feel like a bit of a feature of uh, a presidential election. Typically, um, there's a need to get big pots of cash to hand out to supporters to secure votes. In these sort of, you know, national votes, we're moving towards the elections. I think they're happening in February next year. So there's clearly a point where there's a lot of political jockeying. And I think, you know, there is perhaps a sense to which that is sort of reflected, sort of playing out in this in this sort of bunkering where there are local interests and there are these kind of connections between politicians and uh, criminals, which I think is, you know, part of the, the challenge is, you know, obviously the Nigerian oil company would like to crack down on this long-standing theft problem but at the same time there's a challenge where that is kind of so closely interlinked with politics and and the sort of uh, long-standing power relationships in the country so mr kayari obviously speaking the a, a good game but um you know it's whether we'll actually see him you know sort of uh, arresting the, uh, the, the 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 big boys that he was talking about is obviously a bit of an open question Mm, indeed. Okay, so a few years down the line uh, so far. Let's see how much longer it takes for this to get going, but we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Ed. Uh, and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you again to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. 
Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.